You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Well, I'm Donald McCauley. I'm the primary care editor of the BMJ. Thank you very much for coming along this afternoon. Today we're going to talk about really compassion in the context of the Francis report and other reports that have come out on the NHS and other aspects of care. On my left? Uh, Sean O'Brien. I uh, head the patient experience group at Musgrove Park Hospital in uh, Taunton, Somerset, not Devon. I am a current patient. I underwent a uh, liver transplant in 2009. Peter? Uh, I'm Peter Carter. I'm the Chief Executive of the Royal College of Nursing. Uh, We represent 420,000 nurses and healthcare assistants um, throughout the United Kingdom. And I was particularly pleased to be invited to this because I'm very keen to talk about the issue of compassion. Justin? Um, I'm Jocelyn Cornwell and very pleased to be asked to take part. Thank you. Um, I'm the founder and director of a programme at the King's Fund which does uh, research and disseminates research evidence on all things to do with patient and staff experience in hospitals, particularly in England. Um, but we also do action. Anthony Silverstone, and I'm a doctor working now at UCH. I uh, trained in Birmingham and graduated in 1969 and then specialised in the end in gynaecology and obstetrics and women's cancer, and I came to UCH in 1982. And I'm uh, Joanne Watson. I'm a consultant diabetologist in Musgrove Park Hospital in uh, Taunton, Somerset. I qualified in 1991. So I'm in my 22nd year of being a doctor and I've been a consultant at Musgrove since 2001. Well, thank you very much. I mean, clearly we have some very committed and very experienced professionals. And what I'd like you to do is to actually park that professional background for the conversation this afternoon. I'd like you to speak as a person, as an individual with expertise. And of course, the most important person in all of this is the patient. So what I'd like you to do is to answer the first question as a patient and clearly Sean you're the first person we'd come to. What was your reaction to the Francis report? I wasn't surprised to be honest Um, I've been in and out of the hospital for quite some time and on that journey I've seen both good and bad I think when you have a voice and you're, you're confident and perhaps younger you're more able to challenge things than when you are frail, elderly, confused and some of the practices that I've seen um, disturbed me immensely and again was a big rider for why I I, I decided to try and get back involved you know I'm hugely grateful to the um, National Health Service but I do feel that we're almost treated sometimes like a an inconvenience as I say, it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite easy if you're confident to be able to challenge those around you. But there is a massive, massive number of people that come into the hospitals who, if you tell them the, the sun is green, they're going to believe you because you wear a uniform and a badge. And um, I don't think we make enough time for those people. You know, it seems that everybody in a ward is, 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 is everything's rush, 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 rush. And we don't seem to have time to connect and that's the most important thing is to be able to connect with the people who are there and remember that they're there and that they're probably very scared confused you know it's in unfamiliar surroundings and just to take that time 
And the, and the problem is even, you know, without going into specifics, even when I've challenged ward staff in the past, it, you know, you can see it's not that they don't want to, they just don't have the time. Joe, this is a bit uncomfortable for you listening to one of your patients speak about healthcare in that way. So without addressing that directly, how would you feel as a patient listening to that in your own hospital? I know that it's not perfect. That's why we've got Sean, is you know, to hold that mirror up to us, to say we don't get it right every time. And that's what we're always working, trying to get it better. Jocelyn, if I, if I, if I could come to you now... How do you feel about that? Um, well, it resonates very strongly with me. I, 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 partly as a patient and as a friend and a relative of people who've who use hospitals, I, I can think of umpteen examples of the ordinary ways in which people are treated when they're patients, and I'm not particularly talking about about. Um, health professionals, but by the the organisation's own processes, almost treated like as an inconvenience, as Sean says. I was thinking as you were talking, Sean, about a friend who um, she broke her leg, so she was taken into a hospital in London, uh, which I won't name. Um, she couldn't walk, obviously enough, from the. Um, front door to the um, to the A&E so she was taken in a chair once she was fixed up with plasters and stuff she still couldn't walk she was in a lot of pain and the portering um, service wasn't available to her and the receptionist at the A&E simply said that she could not get a porter to come and my friend Sophie would have to find her own way out of the hospital and so it felt like the system, as it were, the way it worked, the receptionist somehow wasn't empowered to get a porter and nobody else would act on her behalf. And that, it, I think it's a good story because it's kind of a very ordinary story, actually, about everyday life as a patient and about the way in which systems aren't designed around people. I think the patient has to fit in with the system and the way that it works today. I think the other thing that Sean talked about was about people being vulnerable and anxious. And one of the things that um, I suppose I feel is very different from healthcare, from other kinds of service or service-based organisations, is that I'm not a believer that the rhetoric of customers and consumers and all of that is really helpful because I think that patients themselves are full of anxiety even the most ordinary encounter, <laughs> um, finding your way to a clinic or to the right ward and getting lost along the way can be enormously anxiety-provoking for patients because they come for an issue which is central to themselves. So that's kind of slushing around, it seems to me. And I think staff have to protect themselves against that. And I think there are all kinds of ways in which they do protect themselves against the raw exposure, if you like, to other people's anxiety. And some of those involve cutting off from it. Anthony, you have a vast experience of the NHS. Mm. Is the system broken? Well, I think it's lost its focus and lost its direction, lost its emphasis. I do, actually. I, mean, I, I, I think 
and I accept that doctors and nurses have to take different roles these days, but I think fundamentally uh, medical students trained to be doctors and nursing students nurses. And I think we've completely lost understanding what we mean by a good doctor these days with commissioning and so on. You say, is a GP a good doctor? You don't know whether you mean by that, is he a good accountant, a good manager? Is he slick? Is he smart? Or is he a good practitioner uh, and a good clinician? And I was talking to a young consultant, not a young medical student, uh, when the Lansley report came in and and changing the kind of process of commissioning and so on and how the doctors were going to handle all this. And I said this to her, that I was really anxious that when you say so-and-so is a good doctor, you might be saying, actually, he's very slick and very smart and, and, and a good commissioner. And I'm worried that we'll forget what we mean when we say a good doctor. And she said, without even pausing, she said, it's already happened. It's already happened. And I believe her that that I think that you that you get on in the health service, you succeed, you're regarded highly. Uh, if your resources are associated, you can do spreadsheets, you get your targets sorted out, all of which matter in the healthcare. But in the end, it's the doctor-patient relationship. In the end, it's the nursing-patient relationship that matters. In the end, it's to do with clinical leadership. But the idea of clinical leadership and being accessible to the junior staff and leading by example uh, is very important. And I, and I have to say, because there is no continuity of care, because there is no accountability, the other thing that Francis alludes to, isn't it, is a named consultant seeing a patient through the process. Well, that's very novel, but it means for the first time these days that somebody is responsible. Now, you try and identify clinical responsibility, accountability, it's impossible. Why? Because every patient in a 36-hour visit, not not you, Sean, has seen seven or eight charming, well-intentioned, uh, good doctors who introduce themselves, because they're all strangers, of course, knowing that they'll never see the patient again. Well, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that you can't generate real clinical practice, real continuity, real compassion, when you've never met the patient before, you'll never see them again, and you know you'll never see them again. And finally, and I'll stop, the idea that you use resources and so so orthopedic surgeons will choose to replace a hip on the patient they've never seen walk before never seen walk before and will never see walk again just to be sure that that theater time is is used well that is cost ineffective not cost effective and how can you expect how can you expect a surgeon to do his best job under those circumstances it's impossible so i think we're being very disingenuous about this peter what one of the things that struck me you was when the Francis report came out, the huge conflict between my image of the nursing profession and the reality. Now, I appreciate you have a very important professional role, but as a nurse, as someone with a lifetime experience, how did you feel about it? Well, when the original Healthcare Commission report was published, like most people, I was really taken aback. And when I read the individual patient stories... They really were distressing. And it, it pointed to me to a hospital trust that in some areas, because it wasn't uniformly the case, uh, was really in a state of collapse. You, you, know, you, you had the 20-year-old lad who fell off his bicycle, came into A&E, and it was probably a very junior doctor under huge pressure that gave him a cursory examination and someone decided to send him home with a vomit bowl. Um, and we now know he had a ruptured spleen and he died. Um, and and that was really wholly preventable. That wasn't because that was a bad doctor. 
and certainly the nurses in A&E wouldn't be bad people, but it was caught in a system that was simply not geared to cope. And if you look at the distressing stories or accounts of people on the elderly care wards where people were left in excrement for long periods of time, if you actually talk to the nurses involved, these were not callous, indifferent people. These people knew that they were working in a system where they were simply unable to cope. And when you've got 25, 30 or 35 older people requiring total nursing care, having four or five staff on duty is simply insufficient. In a neonatal unit, it tends to be one nurse to three or four infants. In most elderly care settings, it's one nurse to nine or ten patients. So what you've effectively done is we are warehousing older people in wards that are unable to cope. Yes, occasionally you will find a nurse that's completely lost her way, um, her values have gone, and those people, those things have to be addressed. But what I actually think is for most nurses, they want to do a good job, but the current system is preventing them from doing it. There are, there are nurse managers who weren't working on the wards. There are directors of nursing. I, I personally don't believe that Mid-Staffordshire is that much of an outlier. I think I hear stories um, every single week um, and so from do relatives I, and you know people who've about the conditions. I, I I completely agree with you that the care of frail older people is a major major thing that our system has not got to grips with. But what and and I don't think by any means that it's only a nursing problem either. But just listening to you talking, the question that comes to my mind is, well, where is the strong voice of nursing that was actually saying the conditions in which we're expected to nurse older people are unacceptable five years ago, before... Well, Jocelyn, I couldn't agree with you more. And, And that is what you have senior managers for. That is what you supposedly have clinical leaders for, is to walk the job talk to people, talk to patients, see with your own eyes what's going on. Look, um, uh, six years ago, there was a devastating report on the hospital down at Maidstone yes. and, and where 90 people died. If you look at the report, you will see there's a photograph of one of the wards where beds are eight inches apart. And that was because the hospital had got into huge financial uh, difficulties, but they wanted to keep the same level of activity to get the income, so they closed wards but kept the same number of beds and squeezed more and more beds into fewer and fewer wards. So to try and nurse uh, people that were seriously ill in beds eight inches apart, it was inconceivable that you could do it. When infections uh, broke out, it ripped through the ward. Now... I, what I say is that whilst it was quite clear that the trust board were ultimately responsible, where were the nursing leaders who should have been saying to the chief executive and people, look, this is untenable. You cannot possibly expect us to nurse in these conditions. And one of the things that I think has been lost is the um, uh, primacy, if you like, of the ward sister. Um, with much more control and authority, perhaps two not very popular words, but I think it, that is about having a sense of, look, this is untenable, and being able to go up the line and say, no, we are not prepared to put more and more beds into this ward because it simply makes it impossible to nurse. So what you end up with are people feeling disempowered, 
uh, feeling that they're unable to do some uh, anything about it. And that's why you get in some of these hospitals that have very poor standards, a huge turnover because there's no buy-in. Let's ask the question, do doctors and nurses and managers really care anymore? Um, I, I'm not a big fan of generalising about, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, people, nurses or doctors or managers. I think that there's a huge range within each of those groups, huge. I think everybody who works in the health service knows it. They know that they know about the various motivations that different people bring to work. And they're as ordinary as in any other walk of life. And there is a sort of fantasy, I think, which is a constantly said thing, which is everybody in the health service cares. I, I don't think it's a really helpful thing to think that because what I think is that we have to think about creating environments in which it's possible to care. I think that there's some very good research that shows that the ethos of care in teams determines how people in those teams act and behave towards patients. So a really caring person in a very poor team will find it almost impossible to deliver good care. And a pretty unmotivated person in a team with a great ethos of care will find themselves providing good care. We started our work six years ago. And when we started, we commissioned some qualitative research in four hospitals in which one of the questions we asked people at all levels, from porters to the non-execs and execs, was, what do you think good care is? What does good care look like in your area? And do you know what the most often response was? Do you know we've never thought about that? Or do you know we haven't really talked about that? That's a really good question. I think that I've seen teams meet. I've seen groups of people who are called a team meet to talk about the care of individual patients. But you very rarely see um, groups of staff who are delivering care in the same area just sitting together reflectively and saying, what are we trying to do around here? What do we think a really good service for our patients looks like? Anthony, let me bring you in here because you've been very involved in medical education. Do doctors care anymore and what can we do to encourage that ethos? If we have trouble with our doctors, we have to look at ourselves and see how we got to this point. And I'm afraid it's to do with priorities. If you care enough about doctors caring and nurses caring, then create an environment where they can do it. But don't reward them for being slick managers or being smart all the time. Have a sense of what you want from your doctors and nurses. And that's how it was. It was much simpler. But this is still important. A sense of professionalism. And we've lost it completely. Doctors need to talk about medical issues first and foremost, not exclusively. Nurses likewise. A sense of ownership of the ward, a sense of what you mean by being professional, what your priorities are. When Claire Gerarda last year spoke about her response to the new bill, it was the first time in my professional lifetime I have heard a doctor, a leader of a college, talk about professional issues. I'd never heard it before. Normally colleges are working with the government, hoping for this, hoping for that, looking for their knighthood. Whatever it is, but they're not talking about professional issues. And Claire stood up and said, well, look, I'm very sorry, but I'm a working, practicing doctor just like you. And she said, I understand 
There are two people that understand the doctor-patient relationship, the doctor and the patient, not managers who can do their very best, not government, not secretaries of state, doctors and patients. And I'm here to tell you, this is my view, that if we accept all this hook, line and sinker, the doctor-patient relationship, my role as a doctor will be undermined. And it was an extraordinary thing. I thought she was terrific. And the response, of course, the government, this is not part of political, I can assure you, the response to government say, hang on a minute, let's be seen to be doing and thinking and bringing people in and revising and all the rest of it. It was all window dressing and it went through as pretty well unchanged, but that's what they want because they realised that Claire had really opened up a seam of of passionate feeling about how patients perceive the care that they receive. So I have complete faith in young people, both nursing students and medical students. These are outstanding, terrific young people. I interview them all the time. So if they're not doing that 10, 15 years later, we have to think about the reasons why. Joanne, can I come to you now? Because we're we're looking at these young, enthusiastic caring medical students who evolve into doctors who seem to have other priorities. How can we put that right? I do see that I'm not the only person that's involved in, a, in somebody getting better. That when I feel like I am flying in my clinical work, we're, we're working together as a team. That the, the nursing staff, the allied professions are all on the same page and, and our patient really knows that direction of travel as well. So it's helping young doctors to come through that, to see this is the, to, to have respect for everybody that they work with and that we share goals together, we share mutual respect to each other and we share our knowledge as well, that what nurses bring is, is, is important and what the doctors bring is different and complementary and that together we help people on their, their journey back to health. So for me, it's very much around that, that working together as a team. And I think that that's, that's my role as a consultant is bringing those people together as a team and that we work as a team. And I think, Jocelyn, what you, you know, I've paid a lot of attention to the time that we've known each other and to, to say the way it shapes the way that I practice because it's a very much a team approach with real patient-centred care, that they're also contributing on an equal level to their care as well. Peter, can I, can I come back to you because we talked about medical education there. Is nurse education a problem? I was recently out at Buckinghamshire University and I, I, was just, I was just enthralled with their enthusiasm, their commitment. I guarantee you most people that are applying for a nursing course will have all of those qualities. Okay, So couldn't disagree with Robert Francis that you have to ensure it, but most people will have those qualities. What I say is you need to look at what happens after 15, 20, 25 years, particularly if people are left in uh, 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 environments which are understaffed, badly led, constantly changing. You know, a colleague of mine who's worked in an A&E department for 25 years in the same hospital, she had to sleep, well, she volunteered to sleep in the hospital uh, when the snow came um, because nurses couldn't get in. She went and worked on a ward 
And she said she was just astonished at the amount of paperwork that she was having to do during the course of a shift, which was absolutely dispiriting. She said, Lord knows who reads all this stuff, where it all goes. And it detracts from her ability to nurse. And that's a nurse for 25 years in the same hospital going up onto a ward and finding it a complete contrast to what she's been doing with her day job. So I do believe doctors, nurses, physios and the rest do start off and they care. But I do think in some of the areas, and it is some because most patients still express very high degrees of satisfaction with their care, in some areas it can be drained, compassion and, com and caring can be drained out of you. Sean, I'm going to come back to you. You're the patient and you're listening to all this. Mm. And when you're lying in the bed, does this convince you? I have to say there's a couple of things I, 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 I'm itching to say. One is that as doctors and as nurses, it's very difficult to be on board, to, to feel um, energised, to feel part of something when you're worried about your job. You know, we've had this, uh, I don't know the details of it, I'm sure uh, Joanne can talk more about it, but, you know, there was something in the southwest recently where all the consultants were told they were going to have to reapply for their jobs. First and foremost, I do believe that that the management structures, and forgive me, I don't understand actually how they all work, it's their job to actually to, to, to re-empower their teams, to say to them, you know, we believe in you, we're investing in you, you are part of it, we're listening to, we're encouraging you to come forward and to feel part of this. You, it's essential that you drive this because you can't drive from the top, you've got to drive from the bottom. Thank you very much, Sean. That, that is super. Now, you identified two very important points there. Firstly, that as a patient, you don't really, the management structure isn't important to you. What is important is that it works. Yeah. But the second really important thing was about cultural change. And that's changing. That's not just one isolated profession. It's all of us. So, Jocelyn, how do you think we can, how can we enable this cultural change? Um I think that what we've been talking about quite a bit is the experience of staff. I think, and, and that being intimately related to the experience of patients. I think that the experience of staff has had very little attention. In a way, I, I, you know that phrase, the world turned upside down, that they used in the English Civil War. I think we need the world to be turned upside down, which is that at the moment the whole system is kind of led from the top, and in a way, I think the system has to be led by what's going on at the point of care, which is why my program's called that. And at the point of care, you have two things. You have staff relating to patients and patients relating to staff. And I think we need much better information about both in the system. About We need better information about the experience of staff and better information about the experience of patients. I think we need a combination of measurement and qualitative information. And I think we need to invest seriously in finding out what kinds of interventions work in these incredibly complex institutions yeah. which bring professionals of all kinds to work together, often in very unstable teams. What exactly do you mean by data? What kind of data? Most of the teams that we work with in hospitals don't receive, on a regular basis, any information about what their patients have experienced in, whilst they were with them. 
They may they may um, have a bit of information from complaints. They will, in most hospitals, have an annual survey, which will tell them something about what a sample of inpatients received. But I, I swear to you, if you were to go to University College Hospital, to any department there, or to any of the hospitals that we know, and sit down with any team and say, what are your patients telling you is getting better? And what's getting worse since last year? Okay. They wouldn't know. Let me go to Joanne. Joanne, you have some patient data. What's your experience in, in Musgrove Park about the... I know exactly where Jocelyn is coming from and that uh, data is collected, but how is it actually used at the front line? So increasingly, we are surveying more and more people that after their inpatient experience and aiming to get that back to each individual ward area as a feedback to what is happening with around patient experience. The patient experience meeting on Monday. We again we we spoke at we discussed at length about the the, the data gathering, and I've long had a a bit of an issue about you know when you see the statistics, what do they really mean? Certainly on our volunteers program, you know we're using all sorts of initiatives for gathering data, but the truth is we've got to again tell the story to our communities and actually go to them and say if you don't participate, if you're not telling us, how do we know how to make things better? So I think we actually have to sort of take a stand and say, okay, um, this is what we think. What do you think? Engage with us more and more and more and try and encourage people coming into the hospital, whether they be patients or visitors or for whatever purpose, people within the community to give feedback. Because if we can't open a forum where people can freely give that information and are encouraged to give that information, it's very difficult then from, a, from an internal perspective to look and say, well, we don't, if you're not telling us what to do, how do we know how to make it better? The, the other side needs work too, which is that um, it's very difficult to handle date feedback from patients without, if, if you yourselves don't feel empowered to do something about it. In fact, I think it can be quite destructive. And so both sides of the relationship, if you like, need work so that when staff get feedback from patients, which I think they ought to have much more of, they actually feel they know what they themselves can take action or that the management will take action or that their seniors will take action. Otherwise, it's kind of, it's just more beating people up. Let me focus this a little bit in the sense that Francis said we missed warning signs. There was lots of data. We did miss the warning signs. How do we prevent this happening again? You asked the question about culture and how how do we change the culture, and this relates to to this question that you're asking now. And There is no sense of community in the hospital anymore. There is no sense of belonging, of being valued. I often talk to medical students about Bourneville chocolate and and the town of Bourneville and how the people working there felt looked after by the person they were working for and how empowering and how how important it was. And we have to say that, you know, that, that this whole idea of, 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 of ownership and being valued was, was there on an old-fashioned wall with an old-fashioned sister. In those days, any nurse wanted to be a ward sister. That was kind of it, really, because she knew that she was in control of her own environment. I know it's presented slightly glowingly, but the idea that you have somebody in charge who's accessible, who's a professional, who can lead by example, these are the things. There is a lot in this that I do think nursing made a huge mistake when it, it 
downgraded and diluted the role of the ward sister. And one of the things that Francis makes reference to is re-establishing, and he calls it the position of the ward manager, call it ward sister, call it what you like, but knowing that someone has a sense of, this is my area of responsibility, I'm accountable for it, I'm proud of it, I want to run. And I do see lots and lots of good examples of that, but I think that it's an area where the ward sister is now just another part of the team. Now, your listener might think, well, shouldn't they be? No, what they should be is have the time to lead the team. And if they're simply doing the hands-on nursing care, which has got its role, I'm afraid they're not having the overview and the coordination of the ward, which, you know, in the good old days, there were plenty of problems in in, in the good old days, uh, but I do think that that was an area where people really felt confident that someone was running this outfit. Who is going to stand up and be counted and say there is a problem? Is there a culture where that is possible? In my department, we had this completely rogue consultant many, many years ago, 27, 28 years ago. There was no structure. I didn't know what to do about him. I didn't know to whom to turn. It was impossible to know. There was no clinical director. There was nobody. And, of course, in those days, either you were working flat out or you were fired, but there was no halfway house. There was no system where you could turn. Now, of course, there is, and that's real progress. But you lead by example. Senior staff lead by example. And I'm absolutely clear that if the senior staff behave well, middle Grey staff behave well, junior staff, and if they do it badly, it, it's just the same. It's not one uniform state. I mean, it's hugely variable. Uh, and there are lots of very good NHS trusts that have cultures and chief executives, often people that come from a clinical background where they really want to hear, look, if there's some issues, let's get this out on the table. We've also known of places where people have been suppressed. And all of our audits from the RCN indicate that most nurses currently are fearful of speaking out for fear of recrimination and and I think that you know an edict from Westminster is never going to change that you need to chunk it down into the system you need to get more clinical leadership within hospitals and in other care environments and you need to be clear with people If you've got something to say, now let's hear it, let's get it out in the open, and we will work on it. But currently, we're certainly not there now. Jocelyn, as an independent organisation, you you have a a particular opportunity to voice issues. One of the things that Francis talks about is defensiveness, and he says that the culture of the NHS is defensive. And I think that's what the Ombudsman's been saying for decades. Um, It's what people who complain, patients who complain, feel is that there's a very defensive reaction. I don't think these things change overnight. It's a long road, really, turning around the culture of um, big organisations. And I think that the staff have to have confidence in those who are leading the cultural change that they will be around to honour you know, the road that they've set on. And I personally think there's a real problem with the fact that exactly the same people are, as it were, running the system as were there at national level, at strategic health authority level, and that they are, as it were, charged with changing the culture. And I think that they themselves have helped to create that culture. And so what I worry about now is, will staff feel 
Will they have the confidence to speak up and to be more open if they don't see real change in the layers above them? Because I don't think that if I was counselling people on the shop floor, as it were, as to whether or not they should whistleblow or speak up, I'd, I don't think I'd feel confident at the moment in the way that they would be treated everywhere. I'm afraid that's a very negative and worrying note to finish on. We haven't solved the problem even after Francis. This is a bit scary, folks. Let's finish off with with one final round of the solution. What do you think we should or could do to ensure that this doesn't happen again? And we'll start with with Joanne. You know, my money is on the culture of the organ within an organisation and getting us out of this hierarchical norm that we have within the NHS into a developmental country uh, culture sorry that concentrates on people and improvement i think we should be valuing our staff more both in terms of how we look after them how we empower them recognizing professional values these are the things that i think are going to be important in the end um, and accountability, what you were talking about, Jocelyn. I think that if you're there at the end, you're going to be accountable. And if you're not there at the end, you're not going to be accountable. The simple answer is to recognise the importance of the professions within this service and to somehow try and help them do the job that they do best. More listening to patients, more listening to patient relatives and more listening to the frontline staff of all disciplines who are providing the care. I actually do feel very optimistic because I think that I think there are parallels with what happened in patient safety. So 15 years ago, nobody talked about harm to patient or error. And now they do. They talk about it a lot. There's good research. We know some of the tools and techniques that are needed. We know how to change systems. And it's not perfect everywhere, but it's kind of we're on the right road. I think the attention to patients' experience and to the care of the patient is at least five or ten years behind the safety agenda. I think Francis is a moment along that road. I'm old enough to have been here for a long time and to know that there have been many other investigations that people expected to change the world, and they didn't. But I think the kind of drumbeat is getting stronger And I think that we are beginning to see the world being a little bit turned upside down in that everywhere around this table we're all agreed that it's what happens at the point of care that matters and it's staff experience that needs attention as well. And I think that's incredibly positive, actually. I do believe there's a significant role for uh, lay people, advocates, patient experience groups to affect change. I think that our voice needs to be heard everywhere. I think that we, we need to have a, a, a voice with policy changing with, with the governments. I do agree entirely um, with Anthony um, that actually, and Peter actually, with, with regards to the periods of accountability and that people are in post. You know, it's, it's, it, it isn't acceptable to have such change so often. It does destabilise any organisation, especially when you're looking at hospitals the size that they are. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.